0: and we're just going to be here for a second and then we're going to take a detour and then we're going to come back. Psalm 51, look at the first part. Uh, This is a psalm of David. Let me go ahead and jump ahead a little bit. This is a psalm of David. This is King David, the one that God referred to as the man after his own heart. And he writes this psalm, it says, to the choir master uh, when when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is a song. A psalm means song. And the psalms are the psalter. It's the hymn book of the Old Testament. So this would have had music and it would have been played and it would have been sung. And it is written, penned by David. And we have a very specific historical event that it's dealing with. And it's noted here that this psalm was written when David, uh, when Nathan the prophet went to David after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now when I say that, I can't assume that everybody in here knows that. Uh, you've probably heard the story of David and Bathsheba growing up. But I don't simply want to assume that we know the whole of it or the gravity of it, and so therefore, I want us to go back, and this is before days of our lives, this is before as the world turns and the young and the restless. This is a real-life historical soap opera, a drama, a tragedy uh, that has played out in history, and and I want us to go back and and to look at this in Second Samuel, chapter eleven, verse twelve. So in a way, it is a, a, a double barrel sermon, and and here's the the first. And I, I will make a few comments as we go go through this. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, it says, In the spring of the year, and I want you to use your mind's eye. You know, we watch TV, and I've, and I've kind of referred to this as a soap or, or Yellowstone or Dynasty or Dallas. Y'all don't even know what I'm talking about, but some of y'all do. But these things that we watch, and we watch the drama play out before our eyes. And uh, I want in your mind's eye, as well as you can, just a picture the scene uh, that's playing out before our very eyes because it is a drama and it is a tragedy uh, at the same time. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, now let me say this again, King David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbi but David remained at Jerusalem. King David remained at Jerusalem. See, it's, it's, something's repeated there twice. And it's King David was not where he should have been when he should have been there. As a king, he should have been out fighting in the battle because it was the seasons when kings went out to do battle and his army out fighting in battle and yet... Here Samuel in writing this, pinning this says, but David remained at Jerusalem. So we need to understand he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't doing the right thing at the right time. And because he was isolated from his army and alone, let me just paint a picture again that we see on National Geographic. When the lion is is seeking to get a meal, what does he do? He separates one from the herd and then focuses on the one that's separated from the herd. Well, you could look at it this way. David was separated from the herd in which he, he should have been in, and as a result of him being separated, isolated, and alone, that Satan that's referred to as the lion roaming this earth, seeking whom he may devour, found David at this wrong place at the wrong time. And, and so, and, and here's another thing I want you to think about too. This is King David. This is David who when he was young was the one that gathered five stones and went out and he said, why are y'all all standing around? This guy's mocking God. Why isn't somebody doing it, anything about it? And he goes down there and he puts a rock between his eyes and cuts his head off. This David is now on the couch at his house while the armies of Israel are out fighting. Something's changed, right? What's up with that? And so that's the point here. He wasn't where he should have been. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now I do need to point out this is not a typical word used for beautiful. This word for beauty is, is speaking specifically of in appearance. She looked beautiful, not biblically beautiful from the heart, right? He wasn't concerned about that. This was a solely eye to body, beautiful woman, uh, obviously not dressed, bathing, and he's on his roof staring at her. And David sent and inquired about this woman. Who is that? You know? but let me just go ahead and point point out something here too as we're looking at this. Would a messenger or someone being asked this question find it uh, suspicious that the king is asking about this woman? No, no, because her husband is one of the men that's out fighting in the battle, and it would have been normal for a king to ask, how's your your husband, how are things going, how are y'all doing, you know, checking on his people, so they weren't suspicious of any, any wrongdoing. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. You know, again, like I said, would they find that suspicious? No, he's probably just checking up on things, checking up on the family, checking up on Uriah. But then we know, based on what happens next, that David's intentions were not at all pure in sending the messengers to go and get Bathsheba. It says, he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness and then she returned to her house. So he had Bathsheba come over there and seduced her. And, and I again, you know, we have a tendency to blow past a lot of things. And I, and I have to put myself as well as I can in the shoes of Bathsheba. She had to be confused because the king wants to see you. Why? You know? And she goes over there, and then the king, this is the king after God's own heart, a good king, a, a truthful king, an honest king, a leader that she would have looked up to and esteemed, and then he asks for things that she's not expecting, and you have to put yourself in her shoes. Now she probably was fearful, because this is the king. If she resists, then she could be killed. If she resists, then someone in her family could be harmed. I mean, really think about the drama playing out here. She's put in a very compromising position. What could she have done otherwise? She was afraid. Probably this trusting leader is asking her to do this thing, and so she does, and then she returns to her house, and you've got to think of what's going on in her mind the whole time, and then she finds out that as a result of this, this um, affair... This fling that she conceives and she's pregnant and she sent word back to the king, I am pregnant. Now again, she's probably afraid to send that message because the king could have her killed and just sweep it under the rug as if it never happened. She's probably fearful, obviously afraid, what are we going to do now? And so she lets the king know. And you would think at this time, good time to come clean, right, David? And just go ahead and stop right now and to come out and say what you've done. But look at what David did. The plot thickens. David sent word to Joab. This is his commander. And he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing. How's the battle going, boys? How's the war out there? And how the the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to, to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. You know, go down, you stink, you've been out at war, you've been out at battle, clean yourself up and go to see your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. So he wants him to go spend the night with his wife so that they would probably be together. So that the baby could be blamed on Uriah and nobody would know the wiser, right? I mean, he premeditated this thing. He had to think that through. This is going to work, right? My cover-up is going to work. However, the plan gets full because Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. He did not go down to his house. Oops, the plan didn't work. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, how have you not come from a journey? Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark of the Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the fields, in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah the Hittite, being the good guy that he was, couldn't, couldn't imagine spending the night with his wife and enjoying the night at home with his wife while he knows that his troops are out there, his commander and all all of his friends are out there warring with the Amorites. And so he says, I couldn't do that. He's a good guy. Right? He's a, he's a humble guy. His mind and heart are in the right place. But look at what David said. Not not to, to, to be found out, David said to Uriah, Remain here today, and also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and the next. And so obviously David's wheels are turning. He's plotting what to do next. How can I cover this up? How can I cover this grave sin, this adulterous affair? Because let me remind you, David had married honorably. He was married man. He had honorably married and now he's committing adultery. So again, we say, what's up with that? The warrior that's now at home on the couch is the one that got married and has now committed to adultery. What's happening here, David? And he's plotting, he's plotting, and it says Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him in, and he ate in his presence, and he drank so that he made him drunk. That was his plan. I'm going to get him drunk, and then surely he'll go home and be with his wife. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So even in his drunken state, Uriah would not go spend the night with his wife knowing that his boys, his commander, his army, Israel, God's army was out fighting the Amorites. And so he did not go. So strike one, strike two, David, what are you going to do? Are you going to come clean? And it says, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And listen what he wrote in that letter. I mean, how cold! This is cold. I mean, do y'all see how this could be? This could be something you just watch play out on TV because it don't get any colder than this. I have a new idea. I'm going to write my plot to kill him and I'm going to make the guy that I have plotted to kill deliver his own death sentence. How cold is that? And yet, that's exactly what he planned to do. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest battle and then pull back from him. Leave him sitting out there like a sitting duck so they could could pick him off, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Now let me paint a quick picture. We blur past that. Now we say that David murdered Uriah the Hittite, but did you catch that? More good men died. So it's not just the blood of Uriah the Hittite that's on David's hands. He sent a bunch of his, he had the commander of Israel's army send good warriors in there. And that's what he says. Hey, some of them got struck down too. They went to the hardest fight. And so do you not feel that David is accountable even for their blood? Because had he not done this sin with Bathsheba, had he not tried, failed at plotting against Uriah, had he not sent this death sentence, then they never would have been there in the battle in the first place. They never would have had to do it. And Joab too. Think about Joab. Why would my king have me do this? Uh, Uriah's a good guy. He's a good warrior. What's going on? But he feared too, right? In fear, in honoring the king, he does probably confused. Why in the world would we do this? Which makes no sense, but he's not going to say, oh, it's because I slept with his wife, I got his wife pregnant, and all this. And so he has multiple people killed. We don't know, it just says that some fell. It says he set Uriah here in this hardest place of battle, and Uriah fell, and some of David's servants fell. And see, these people were fighting in honor of the king, right? They were following the commands of the king, and this king is sending them to die. And wow, that's cold. That is cold and wicked and evil. And then we continue on it says Joab sent and told David about the news of the fighting after Uriah had died. And he instructed the messenger when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know what they would that they would shoot from the wall? Didn't you know as a commander of the army that if you get that close to the wall that the archers are going to start lobbing arrows at you? Well, of course he knew that. But he was following the orders of the king. He was being obedient to the king. And so he says, Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at thebes?" That's another story. We'll go into that. Why did you go so near the wall? If David's asking you why in the world you go so near the wall, then you shall say this, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Basically, I did whatever it took to get the guy killed that you wanted killed that's why I had to send them so close to the wall. That's why other people had to die because Uriah the Hittite, faithful warrior of Israel's army, fighting on behalf of the honor of the king and the glory of God, has to go there and that's what it took to kill him. But hey, mission accomplished, King David. Wow, how cold is that? So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance to the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. See, there it is. Some, some. we don't know how many of your king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Also, are is their blood not on David's hands as well in a roundabout way? Absolutely. Absolutely. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Basically, he's saying he probably would have died anyway. Don't sweat it. How cold is that? He probably just would have got killed in the battle. Hey, You know, one dies here, one dies there. You don't know, so don't take it personally. Be encouraged. How cold. How heartless. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she cried, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, probably seven days later, look at what David did. Good old David. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. He tries to make himself look like a hero. Look at what I'm going to do. I'm going to step up and marry this widow woman. Also, if people aren't counting on their clock or using the timing in the months, then this kid, when it's born, will look like it's mine. Right? Nobody will be the wiser. Nobody will ever know I've finally pulled it off. And not only have I pulled off all of this wickedness, this evil, I've also become the hero because I've saved this lonely widow woman. And when the wife of Uriah heard, she lamented. And the morning was over, David had brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, David had done what was evil in God's eyes. All of this time, see, we fail to remember that when nobody is around us, somebody is always watching us, and it's God Almighty. There is nowhere where you and I can go. There is no place where you and I can be where He does not see and know all that we do. And yet David, for some reason, failed to remember that. And all this time when he thought he had everybody fooled, he had even fooled himself, right? We see that he had gotten nothing past God Almighty and he had done what displeased the Lord, his master. And then we get to chapter 12 and boy, you think, and they lived happily ever after is what David's thinking, right? End of the, end of the show. It's over. The credits come up and it's over and everybody's happy. No, no. Part two happens and the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan was a prophet, spoke by, spoke the word of God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, what does he say? He says a parable. This is a parable. He says, David, let me tell you a story. Here's the story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Do you see that? We all see that. That precious pet, that beloved. We see this in our mind. and, And then look what happens. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it. Killed it. Killed it. Cooked it for the man who had come to him. What? That's cold. That is cold. That's harsh. And look at how David responds to this. Then David's anger. How would you feel? I mean, I think you'd be mad. Somebody killed my pet, right? Somebody killed my beloved pet and they cooked it and they ate it. Wow. And you had a whole heart. And then so David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb, get this, fourfold, four times over. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And you say, oh, aren't you nice? Aren't you kind, David? Aren't you kind? And then Nathan said to David, you're the man. (laughs) You're the man. Can you see him kind of going, huh? Huh? I mean, we understand this. You have this man of God coming up. Preacher comes up to you and says, I know what you did. (laughs) Huh? And he says, you're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And let me just point this out too. Isn't it interesting that he spared the life of Saul and yet takes the life of Uriah? What's going on with David? Uriah had not even thrown a spear at him, tried to kill him. And then here, huh, what's going on? And he says, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wife into your arm and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? To sin against God, to not do what he told him to do, to do what he said not to do, to sin against God. Why have you done this evil? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. So let's just go back and stop real quick. Could you imagine? Can you see the blood leaving his face? Can you see him just turn pale white? Found out? Sick? Probably just, ooh. I thought I'd gotten away with it. I thought I'd pulled it off. And then he gives play by play. Everything I've done, he lays it all out on the line. He knows. How did he know? Because God knew. And he had not fooled God. And you could just see him probably just sinking down. You know, he was a hero, right? He had judged right. And he sinks down. And here's another thing too. Isn't it interesting how he saw the sin in someone else and got angry about it but didn't see the sin in his own life? And we look at ourselves and we say, I do that too, Right? It's what we do. It's so easy to see the speck in our brother's and sister's eye when we have a rod in our own eye. And so God says, first we need to take it out. And so that's the tendency with us, right? It's so easy to see other people's sin and not admit our own. And not be angry at it. And it says, now, therefore, this is the judge. okay, that's that's what the charge, that's what you did. And now here's the judgment. Now, therefore, because of this, the sword shall never depart from your house. because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the, in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. Well, I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And let me just go ahead and say, David said fourfold they will pay. He loses the son. We're about to see that, that he conceived with Bashar. And then he loses three more of his other son. They all fall by the sword. And Absalom, his own son, sleeps with his wives on the rooftop, which interestingly enough, this whole sin started from the rooftop. And we come back to the rooftop. But this time, rather than David staring at naked Bathsheba, here's his son Absalom being laying with his wives and concubines. Wow. Oh, how the tables have turned. So are the days of our lives. Right? The drama plays out. Then we get to verse 13. And verse 13 is key. Why would we go through this? Why would we look at this? Because verse 13 is where we get Psalm 51. This is where Psalm 51 comes from. The little footnote that was mentioned. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord Supremely, ultimately, I've sinned against God. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, so He's forgiven. Now this should blow you and me away. And it should also be a message of hope. If God can forgive David for all that we've just gone through, He can forgive you. There is no sin too dark, too black, that His light cannot come in and shine upon it and save you from your sin. Jesus will save His people from their sin. And David's convicted here, right? You see conviction because the man of God points out his sin. He's convicted of his sin. He confesses his sin here. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, and because of this, God, the Lord, has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, and I need, I need us all to hear this. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord by this deed with Bathsheba. And he says, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And then you go on and you read and you see the child dies. What should that teach us? There is forgiveness, but hear me, sin always has consequences. You can be forgiven of your sin, but you can still have to endure the consequences of your sin. And so we see that played out in life. I think one of the main things we've seen, you could be forgiven for an immoral relationship that you've had, but if you contract AIDS during that immoral relationship, guess what? God can forgive the sin, but you have to suffer the sickness and the disease as a result of your sin. There are consequences to our sin. No one sins in a vacuum isolated alone. There are the ripples effects. And we can go back and we can trace the concentric circles of this one sin of looking with His eyes and then feasting in His heart and desiring. And that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw the fruit, that it looked beautiful. And there's that word beautiful again. It was beautiful to the eyes. And she desired it and she took it. And where has that got us? And that's exactly the way the sin played out for David on the roof. He saw, he desired, he tasted the forbidden fruit, and here's the concentric circles of sin continuing to go out. But it leads us to Psalm 51, and there is hope, right? That's a horrible story, but the beauty of it is God saves sinners. God is still in the business of saving sinners, and so now, back to Psalm 51, we have arrived. What I want you to notice before we go through this is is that it's God that's taking the action. He's the one that's taking every bit of action. He's the one that's working on behalf of David. All David can do is ask, please God, do this. And God alone is the one that acts. David is the beneficiary. The title of the sermon today is A Contrite Sinner's Song. And I I want to go ahead and say in parenthesis for Reconciliation in this case it's for restoration for king david's restoration but hey this could also be supplied for redemption also be applied for redemption and, and salvation right the same song why because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life through who jesus christ the lord and so whether you're saved and you need to be reconciled to God in the sense of restored to fellowship with Him in that sense, which is what we see with David, he was a saved man that sinned and his sin separates us from fellowship with God and he's wanting that restored fellowship. Those who had never come to saving faith in Christ, sin separates them from God and the only way they'll be reconciled is by calling out to God, have mercy on me, the sinner. So the same thing applies in redemption as well. We don't use the word contrite a lot. They're contrite. Contrite Latin literally means to ground up, to be crushed, to be broken. Specifically over wickedness, over evil, over wrongdoing, over sin to be crushed, to be broken over sin. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is not doing what Jesus tells us to do, doing what God tells us not to do. And then sins of omission, we talked about this morning, I believe Jacob mentioned, is where we sin, we don't even know we're sinning because we're so good at sinning that we can sin without even seeking to sin. Whoa. So omission and commission, known and unknown sins. Sin is, is wickedness, it's lawlessness, and a contrite spirit is to be broken over sin. And as I've already mentioned, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A psalm is a song, as I've already said. So this is a contrite sinner's song. David sung this song as a sinner broken over his specific sin. And let me just go ahead and say, I'm not going to make you say the sin that so easily entangles you out loud. I won't mention sin that so easily entangles me out loud, but the beauty of this poem, the, or this psalm, the beauty of this song is that it was not only for David, it's for you. It's for you. If you don't know Christ, I pray that this would be the song of your heart, that this would be the cry of your heart, your heart's cry. That you would cry out to Jesus and be reconciled to God, saved from your sin. That you would be broken over your sin. And if you have sin in your life as a believer, then I pray for, for reconciliation, restoration, that this, that this would call us to the carpet to get serious about our sin and to be broken over it. To the point to where we say, God, separate me from what separates us. And to cry out for restoration, reconciliation. This is a penitential psalm. It's dealing with sin. Obviously, it's one that deals with a historical account. I think one of two in all the psalms that we can go back and see hey, this is how this plays out. That's why we went back, because I wanted us to see it play out in real time. But I want to hurry as we look at the at, at psalm, the specific text for the day, now that we've looked at 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But note, again, I've already mentioned this in verse 13, we see conviction over sin and we see confession. I've sinned against the Lord. And that leads us to this contrition, to this brokenness. Was he just sad he got caught? No. He is broken over his sin. How do we know that? Because of what he pens in Psalm 51. Look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So the first thing we see here, verses 1 and 2, is a cry for His own restoration. A cry for His own salvation. Save me from this sin. Have mercy on me. Some of your texts may say, be gracious to me, O God. Well, we talked about grace this morning. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's getting something we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something we do deserve. Now what did David deserve? He deserved death. Even according to Levitical laws, even according to Old Testament law, he deserved to die for his adultery. He was an adulterer. He deserved to die. And yet here he says, God, don't give me what I deserve. I deserve judgment. I deserve punishment. But God, please be merciful to me and don't give me what I do deserve. Be gracious to me and show your favor and give me something I don't deserve, which is your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. So he's crying out to God, why? But to have mercy on him because he brings nothing to the table, except as Tim mentioned, that Jonathan Edwards mentions, except the sin that makes salvation necessary. God, all I have to offer is my sinful self, and I am toast if you don't do something about it. If you don't save me, I am ruined. I am undone. And so he says, "Be merciful to me, O God." And we could say, remember the story of. The tax, the publican, and, and, and the, what is it, the Pharisee, the tax collector, whatever, who says, Have mercy on me, oh God, the sinner. And he wouldn't even look up. That's a, we, that's a picture here. He is understanding, I'm a sinner, and I bring nothing to the table except the sin that requires my salvation, uh, that makes salvation me necessary. And he says, According to your steadfast love, according to your righteous love. So he's pleading to the name of God that we find back in Exodus chapter 34. He's saying, God, because of who you are because of your attributes and characteristics because of your namesake for your namesake for your glory alone God have mercy on me according to your abundant mercy and he says blot out my transgressions and he says wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sins. So you have three different terms for sin there, which really covers the two. I mentioned sins of omission and sins of commission. And also in there, those that we don't even know we're doing. He's covering it all. He says, every bit of it, God... The sins I'm aware of, the sins that I know I've done, the ones I don't. I am coming to you as a sinner that's a sinner through and through, and I cast myself on your mercy. Save me for your name's sake. Blot out my transgressions. Anybody else in here getting a picture of white out up there? Uh, yeah, liquid paper to blot out. That's cover it up, cover it up. But white out can't cover your sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus, I can't do it. I can't cover my own sin. You cover it with your blood. Blot it out so it's no longer held against me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. From the inside out. Clean the cup from the inside out. I just don't want to look clean on the outside like a whitewashed tomb, like a Pharisee. I want to be clean inside and only you can do it. And so he says clean me wash me and cleanse me from my sin. So again what can what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus and that's what it, that's so the sinner comes here and he's calling out for a savior and the savior is the one doing all the action and we are the beneficiaries of what he and he alone can do. And so the sinner cries out for mercy. And then we get to verses 3 through 6 and what we see is a confession of his sinfulness, a confession of his, David's sinfulness. He says, for I know my transgressions. So he was keenly aware of what he had done. He said, my sin is ever before me. Have you ever done something? Well, I know you have. You're a sinner, like me. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever done something? And maybe it's just so wrong that it's just always there. You're always thinking about it. You always remember it. You can't just take, you're praying that God has blotted it out and washed it away and that it's gone as far as the east from the west, but it's still just before you, gnawing at you, gnawing at you. You know it's there. And he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is just always before me. And then again, he's acknowledging against you and you only have I sinned. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. Did he sin against Joab and all these people? Yes. Ultimately, he's saying, I know that the sin, the ripple effect of my sin has affected tons of people, but ultimately I sinned against you because I've broken your law and I've done what's evil in your sight. And so he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, people, you and I need to understand that if God... Gives us the charge of guilty, we all are. And he, there's no fault in God saying you're guilty. And if God were to kill us, strike us dead, send us to hell, He would be just in all that. And that's what He's saying God, I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve any good or grace from you. I deserve hell. And if you send me there, you're not wrong doing it. You are just in that. And that's what a true, contrite, broken sinner realizes. I deserve hell. I deserve eternal separation from God. But I pray that you're merciful on me, the sinner. My sin is there. I pray that you blot it out. And he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then we get to verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, God, I know. I realize I was brought forth in iniquity and in, in sin did my mother conceive me. And so, what he's saying here is, I understand that I am such a sinner that I'm, I'm not, I don't only just sin by these actions, I was conceived in sin. I was brought forth in iniquity, and Adam all die. I, I have the sin of Adam, original sin. I come out sinning. I am born a sinner. Nobody has to tell me how to rebel and kick and scream and say no and defy. Has anybody had to teach their kid how to say no? You came out doing it. A rebel. You are by nature a child of wrath, just like the the rest. You you are born dead in your transgressions and sin. And he says, I was born with this sin nature. It's just so natural to me. Inside and out, I'm a sinner. And he said, beyond that, in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not saying his own mom was an adulterer. He's acknowledging that even at conception, when we get our humanness from that very point, I knew that... I have the sin of Adam within me and I'm going to be a sinner. So I am in am an Adam and in an Adam I'll die. And so we come out sinning. And so he's just saying, God, behold, do you realize how sinful I am? Do you really see that through and through, I'm talking from birth forward, I've been good at one thing and it's sin and rebellion against you. And so he's acknowledging the depths of his sinfulness. And he says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret of the heart. And so it goes back to the heart, right? It goes back to the heart. God sees our heart. He knows our heart. David probably had everybody fooled. Nobody knew his sin. God knew his heart. All these requests that he's making, everybody's saying, well, I don't get it, but he's a king, I'm going to do it. God knew the the insidiousness of the sin within his own heart. God saw the heart. And so that's what what he's saying here. You delight truth on the inward being. You want me to be yours. Throughout, you want, you want me to hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You teach me wisdom in the secret of the heart. And he's saying, that's my desire, God. I don't, I don't just I want to be externally appearing righteous. I want to be internally righteous. And so I'm casting my sinful self that brings nothing to the table to you. And I'm saying, save me. Save me. And then he gets to verses 7 through 12. What we see is a cry for his own purification and restoration, or again, that's all under the umbrella of reconciliation, being reconciled to God. So a cry for his own purification and reconciliation. And so here in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. What is, what is hyssop what is that? Purge me Ceremonial cleansing, hyssops bush so you can think they're just taking these, these bushes, these limbs and they would dip them in water and they would d- declare someone ceremonial clean. It was typically used in declaring a leper who was covered in leprous spots During when they were healed of leprosy they would be declared ceremonially unclean and what he's saying is God all these spots of sin, all of this sinfulness that's just covering me God he says only you can wash me make me clean God wash me ceremonially that's the picture here take this sin this leprous sin that's over here and just heal me heal me wash me purge me get it away from me wash me and I shall be whiter than snow then Lord, what's the hymn? I can't remember it. Lord, I long to be perfectly whole. Cast out every idol. uh, Cast out every foe. Lord, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I know that's not the words, but that's where we get this from. Whiter than snow, yes. Whiter than snow. Lord, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So he wants to be pure as the driven snow inside and out. And he's crying for this. Purify me. Make me clean. Take away my sin. And he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. When we get separated from God, we don't want to listen to him do we? we 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 lose that fellowship we lose that joy when there's a strain in earthly relationships the the joy is is gone and so he's saying i want that joy to return to me i want to hear joy and gladness of your sweet fellowship and he says let the bones that you have broken rejoice Sexual sin affects the body. There's something about it. We see in Scripture that it is a sin against the body. So in this sense, maybe he's feeling it, but really he's saying, God, the crushing weight of my sin is like literally breaking my bones. Have y'all ever been that guilty where it's just killing you and crushing you? And He says, heal me, take it away, let the bones that you've broken rejoice. I want restored fellowship with you. I don't want this anymore. And then he says, hide your face from my sins. Don't hide it from me. Don't hide it from me. Just hide your face from my sins. Don't look at my sin, God. And then he says, and blot out, here it is, all of my iniquities. Cover it. And then this is one of the verses, probably one of the most popular verses from this this psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I love this verse because you know who can create out of nothing? Only God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and there. Only He can change your desire. Only He can create in you a pure heart. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will remove their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will create in them a heart that lives and breathes and follows me. Only God can do it. So He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God, I I just want to get everything right. I just want to be right with you. I want our fellowship to be restored. I want to be in the right way, walking the narrow way, following you. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Some people say, see, you could lose your salvation. No, that's not at all what he's saying. He is the king Is saying, God... I I want to be in fellowship with you. I want to be in your presence. You deserve to throw me to the side like you did Saul to remove my kingship, to remove all of these blessings that you've given me. If you do that, God, you're righteous in that. But he says, please don't cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me, God. I want fellowship with you. I want you here with me, God. Be with me. If you could, if you you would have a right to take away your Holy Spirit from me, but he's saying, God, please don't. Don't, don't, do not go from me. I want that fellowship, that restored relationship with you. And then in verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You can be saved and not joyful, right? Obviously, he knew Christ, but he's not joyful in his sin. Obedience leads to joy is what we tell our kids, right? Disobedience leads to discipline, but it also brings a lot of sadness, right? And so that's what he's saying. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So basically he's saying, God, not only save me, but sustain me. Keep me. Hold me. I want to continually follow you in fellowship with you. I want to be near you. And then we get to verses 13 through 17, and what we see is a commitment for his continued confession adoration, and contrition. We can sum that up. He makes this commitment to be continually conforming more and more to the image of Christ, to continually grow in Christ-likeness. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 13. He says, Then, God, when you do this, here's here's the result. If you save me, if you restore this fellowship with you, God, if you do these things, are merciful to me and gracious to me, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. You know if you are merciful to me and you save me I'm going to tell others how they could be saved too. Ah oh. That's, that's what we're to do, right? To say, hey, I was saved. How are you saved? Jesus saves. He will save you from your sins. I'm going to teach transgressors your way, your truth, from your work, and as a result of that, people, more people, are going to come to salvation in and through you. And then he says, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation. So obviously, he's specifying here, the blood of Uriah, the Hittite, is on my hands. Not only that, all of these others have died... A senselessly because of my sin their guilt is on my hands and he says deliver me save me O god O god of my salvation and if you do indeed save me and are merciful to me even though i do not deserve mercy i deserve judgment he says my tongue is going to sing aloud of your righteousness i'm going to praise you for that you alone get the glory because you alone can save me you alone can deliver me you alone can forgive me so he's crying out for forgiveness and then he says, "The sacrifices of God." Or go back in verse. Verse says, "You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering." He's saying basically here, if it was just doing sacrifices that saved me, if it was just going through the work of sacrificing animals, I would do it. But that's not what saves. I know that's not, that's what we just talked about in Sunday school. All of this religious work and going through the religious works, that's not what saves you. He's looking at the heart. He says, You don't delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. He, what does he desire then? We see it in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Contrite means broken, crushed. Over what? Your sin. You're crushed. You're broken over your sin. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So it's the one who says, there's nothing I can do to save myself, only you. I am broken over my sin and only you can save me. That's the one, the one that cries out to God in faith to be merciful to me, the sinner. He will not despise. And in verses 18 and 19, and we're almost done. We see that he goes from this, first of all, making this cry for his own personal restoration to where he's making this cry for the restoration of his nation. He says, do do good design, do good to your people, God in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. This is post-exilic. Obviously, Solomon is going to be the one that, that rebuilds the temple. He's praying for restoration, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, the temple where people can enter in and make sacrifices to God. And he says, do good design, in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. So he's saying, when the temple is rebuilt and people come in, they make sacrifices. The sacrifice is not what saves them it's the sacrifice that's made with the right heart going and saying this sacrifice I recognize my sin and I acknowledge without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin but this is only a reminder and it's pointing to something greater and I'm trusting in Messiah to save me from my sin because only God Almighty can save me and so that's right having a right heart not just I killed it God did you see that alright we're good for another day No, God, I am a sinner, and this reminds me, this is what I deserve, death, because of my sin. And it reminds me that the only, once for all, perfect sacrifice is Messiah. Please, God. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And it says, not only that, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then the bulls will be offered to your altar. So as a result of this, we're, go- we're just going to give a sacrifice acknowledging our sin, and we're going to give you a sacrifice of praise God. We want our lives to be a living sacrifice. We just read that in Sunday school. We want our lives to be a living sacrifice, lived out, pleasing, and acceptable to you, acknowledging, God, that you alone save. And we're dependent upon you for our salvation. So, that leads us to this. The application. In Psalm 51, really what we're seeing is the ABCs of salvation. A, acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have sinned. Be convicted of that sin. Be broken over your sin. Um, Admit that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. This is repentance. Brokenness over sin. You can't save yourself. You need a Savior. B, believe in Christ alone as your Savior, as your Lord and your Master, and place your faith and trust in Him because, again, only He alone can save you. C, confess your sin Cry out to Jesus to save you from your sin and confess Christ is Lord. So you see how this applies not only in reconciliation and restoration, but salvation itself. It's the same cry of the sinner for both. Reconcile me to you, God. I'm a sinner. I need you. You're my Savior. I confess my sin. You alone are Lord. You alone can save. And then... When you're saved, we can actually see what biblical Christianity and true Christianity looks like when we look at Psalm 51 because did you see what happened as a result of this conviction, this contrition, this confession, this coming to Christ and confessing Him as Savior and Lord? He says as a result of this, God, I want to continue to grow in likeness. I want to continue to grow in Christ, to conform more and more to the image of Christ. I want to continue to confess my sin and to cling to you, Christ, as, as the forgiver of my sin, as my Savior. I cling to you in the completed work of Christ at the cross for my forgiveness. And then what do we do? We continue to confess Christ as Lord and fulfill His commission and command to call others to Christ. Hey, I'm a blind beggar who found food and someone gave me sight and I'll tell you where to go to find it. So we're out there telling people, I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ and He can save you. If He could save David, He can save you. If He could save me, He can save you. So run to the cross, run to Christ. And also in Psalm 51, and this is the last thing we see, is we're called to continually be committed to worship and praise and adore God. Why? Because He alone saves. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. So run, run, run to Christ. Amen.